Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Battleground with me, Patrick Bishop, and Saul David, who's back in one piece, you'll be pleased to hear, from his canoeing adventures in the wild waters of Scotland, though it was doubtful at times. I'll be getting him to tell us a bit more later. Well, the picture in Gaza just keeps getting ever more grim and apocalyptic. The Israeli operation to crush Hamas has intensified with the Defence Ministry claiming it's now effectively cut the strip in half and is moving to occupy Gaza City. Now, the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has just announced that when the fighting is over, Israel intends to exercise security control over Gaza indefinitely. We'll be discussing what that means for the future of the conflict. Meanwhile, Israeli air raids carry on with no signs of slackening, causing massive damage to the fabric of the place, but of course also to human lives. The health ministry in Gaza, Hamas-controlled, we should point out, says the death toll has now passed 10,000 and that 4,000 of them are children and many of the rest, of course, will be civilians. Um, just a quick point on the number of casualties. Israel, of course, is saying that Hamas is exaggerating them, but even the US, and it has no reason to, to exaggerate itself, it is saying they are in thousands. So I think, you know, and those thousands are thousands too many, I think we'd all agree. The Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, claim that in the process of all this destruction, they are systematically dismantling Hamas military infrastructure and notably destroying the elaborate tunnel system it's constructed over the years, as well as killing many of Hamas's fighters. But let's start off with that Netanyahu announcement. What do you make of it, Patrick? Well, let's just recap what he says. He's saying that basically, you know, once this is all over, uh, Israel will assume security responsibility indefinitely for as long as they think it's necessary. And uh, he, he said, I'm quoting here, when we don't have that security responsibility, what we have is the eruption of Hamas terror on a scale we couldn't imagine. He said this in an interview with the American network ABC News. But, you know, immediately people have pointed out that actually uh, puts him at odds with American policy. Joe Biden last month warned Israel against a full-scale occupation of Gaza, saying that doing so would be a big mistake. And so this, this seems to be opening up a little bit of light between the two very closely allied positions hitherto. Now, my own immediate thought about this is, is I would, can't really see how it, how it would work. Uh, you'd be back essentially to the situation prior to September 2005 when Israel pulled out of the Gaza Strip after occupying it for 30 years. So this would be a uh, return to a status quo ante, which was, you know, the Israelis themselves admitted was, was untenable, otherwise um, they wouldn't have left. I remember actually visiting as many times actually during the Israeli occupation, going out on patrol with soldiers with the Galani Brigade, usually referred to as an elite unit, and just sort of driving through these sort of rows of sullen faces, 
it wasn't going to work then and it, they accepted that. So I can't see how it could work now. And it would seem to be a guaranteed recipe for the uh, resurrection of Hamas in some form or another. But anyway, they've got to get on with winning this war first, haven't they? Well, there's been a stream of bulletins from the IDF reporting steady progress, but they're pretty sparse on details, usually just listing the number of air raids without saying what they're actually hitting. There were air raids, 450 overnight on Sunday, uh, Sunday to Monday, more raids last night, including, it must be pointed out, some in the south in Khan Yunus and Rafa, where the population have been told to go because they're supposed to be safe areas. But I kind of wonder at this point, you know, how, how many more targets can there be of value to hit? Uh, the IDF have allowed some journalists in to embed with their troops. I saw a, a report from another ABC report from a reporter, Ian Panel, with an armoured unit, but it wasn't very revealing. It just showed utterly devastated townscape, rather reminiscent, I must say, of Homs uh, in Syria after the uh, Syrian government had flattened it a, a decade or more ago. So I imagine if that carries on at this pace, uh, that will be the fate of Gaza City as well. But so the military effect is pretty hard to say. And in the meantime, there has been, a, there are little signs of political movement, aren't there, Saul? Yeah, we're getting, we're getting signals that the Americans, and this is what makes um, Netanyahu's statement even more mystifying, actually, because we're getting signals that the United States, of course, Israel's closest ally in all of this, has actually been having talks with the Palestinian Authority leader, uh, and that's Mahmoud Abbas, about some kind of post-conflict settlement. Because, of course, the big question we've got to ask ourselves, Patrick, is what is the end game for Israel in all of this? You know, we, we now have Netanyahu saying, well, we're just going to stay there. We're going we're to uh, retain security control over Gaza. That is not a long-term solution. I think both of us agree. The Americans, in talking to Abbas, have posed a possible scenario where the Palestinian Authority regain control over the Gaza Strip and 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 in some way unite the two uh, halves of the Palestinian Authority or the two original halves, which of course are the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And interestingly enough, so the reports are suggesting Abbas has actually said he's open to the possibility of this, but he's demanding, uh, you know, something in return. And that is that uh, this will lead to a genuine two-state solution in which the Palestinian Authority has total control over the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and also, importantly, East Jerusalem, which, of course, is going to be difficult for certainly the Israeli hardliners, or, or at least the right of center parties, to agree to. And yet, it strikes me, Patrick, that this might be the only long-term political solution that's going to satisfy everyone. But can we imagine that this will be acceptable to Israel? Well, the trouble is, Saul, that the, the political landscape has changed dramatically uh, in Israel since the Oslo Accords, uh, all that sort of hopeful period at the beginning of the turn of the last century. That's changed now. There, there's been a, a very strong shift to the right in Israel. You know, inside the, the government coalition, you've got three parties, which can only be categorized as far right. And their geographical ambitions for Israel are completely at odds with a two-state solution. They believe in an Eretz Israel, a greater Israel, a biblical Israel, which takes up all the lands that are now occupied by the Palestinians. So, you know, this would be absolute anathema to them. Even Likud, the, which is uh, Netanyahu's party, their commitment to a two-state solution when they have made utterances on it over the years is at best lukewarm, I would say. So you're actually asking them to do a complete, uh, the people in power now, to do a sort of 180-degree flip 
if they're going to engage with the Americans on this. I think one of the things that's got to come out of this terrible situation is a sort of change in the political geography of Israel. And that, of course, will require elections. I think Netanyahu's fate is sealed. I think no one really believes uh, his handling of the situation prior to, I think, he, you know, clearly what he's done since is is what you'd expect any Israeli leader, frankly, to do. But the run-up to it, there are many, many questions being asked about his leadership, and uh, I suspect he will not be uh, leading the next Israeli government. Anyway, let's get back to um, the actual fighting on the ground, Saul. What do you think is actually going on with these ground operations? I mean, how are they dealing with the tunnels? Well, they've now um, surrounded, as you, as we said at the top, uh, Gaza City, uh, which is where they obviously have identified the majority of Hamas sort of command and control positions, and, and where, and also where the majority of the tunnels are based. Now, we're told that there are up to three hundred kilometers of tunnels, and this frankly reminds me of a subject I've written about, Patrick, and that is the Okinawan campaign in the Second World War. And there's a very interesting article actually about the history of tunnel warfare in the Spectator magazine by an author called Ian Pike, who's a kind of specialist in uh, Japanese warfare. But he's also looked back, interestingly, all the way back to Roman times when the uh, Romans were stamping out Jewish opposition in Judea many, many moons ago. And it was interesting, a lot of the fighting took place there in tunnels. And he really gives five examples of tunnel warfare. Three of them end in Pyrrhic victories, which is an example you could say was relevant to Okinawa. I mean, yes, the Americans did eventually take the island, but an enormous cost, which I've probably mentioned on the podcast before, 12,500 Americans lost their lives, including 5,000 sailors, a lot of them killed by kamikaze attacks. And it's absolutely dreadful fighting. And a lot of it was because the Japanese had very effectively tunneled into the island and made it almost impossible to eradicate the defenders. And that, of course, is a point Ian Pike is making in the Spectator article, which is that actually rooting out the occupants of these tunnels is going to be incredibly difficult. Now, the Israelis themselves are saying, we're not actually going to go into the tunnels. We're, we're going to use uh, remote control robots, and we're also going to seal the tunnels. And that's all very well. But actually, the ability to completely destroy this network without at the same time effectively destroying Gaza City. It's really hard to imagine that's going to be something that they can accomplish. So even their military goals, and that's even without getting onto the absolutely vital aspect of the political settlement, what's going to happen to Gaza, the Gaza Strip at the end of all of this, even their military goals, I, I suspect, are probably impossible to achieve. But as we said at the beginning, since we turned to Gaza on the podcast, Patrick, the Israeli government, whoever's in control, and obviously it's Netanyahu at the moment, has to be seen to be doing something. But it strikes me that he's kind of operating on a let's see where we go with this rather than having any end game in place. And that, of course, is a recipe for disaster, as we know from Iraq and every other situation where people have ignored Clausewitz's rule, which is you must have a political end game before you start war. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I, that, that's the feeling I got from that statement. It, it was a kind of holding position designed to uh, satisfy, you know, his constituency, I, you know, every Israeli citizen, reiterating, we're going to be very tough about this, we are going to suppress Hamas. I think it spoke to that particular text. Just on that tunnel article, I read it too, Saul. I, th I think it was Francis Pike, if I recall correctly. Anyway, it's very well worth a read, really kind of erudite stuff. Now, just to get back to the the ground attack, I think that what they're trying to do there 
is, you know, frankly unrealistic. I mean, this tactic of cutting off northern Gaza and ex- essentially making it a free fire zone, well, it sounds okay in principle, but, you know, I don't think Hamas are going to oblige you by staying inside that area. And they'll be mingling with the refugees now huddled in the south. Now, if Israel move in there uh, on the ground, they're going to have to flatten that too, probably killing tens of thousands of uh, women and children in the process. Uh, just in those attacks last night on Khan Yunus and Rafa, 23 people who are said to have been killed, for example, and that would be a very small number compared to what would happen in a ground war. So I think that even the most ardent of uh, Israel's diplomatic allies starting with Joe Biden, are going to see uh, this is a good idea. And I think this hastens the inevitability of a ceasefire. I mean, the argument now is that a ceasefire means that Hamas has won. But that doesn't seem to make much military sense to me, as um, Hamas is really an idea, isn't it, as much as a physical force. And so de facto, it can't be defeated on the battleground. And it certainly doesn't seem to make much moral sense going into, uh, into southern Gaza in that way. Um, but to stand back a little bit, what do you think this conflict is is doing thus far to the IDF's military reputation, Saul? Well, it's a little bit early to tell. I mean, what's been quite interesting for me as an observer, and certainly as an observer from far, is that the IDF has actually taken relatively few casualties thus far. It's taken, I think, about 30. I think we're between 30 and 40 casualties, which is obviously minuscule and, and of course, is a you know a pretty grim counterpoint to the number of civilians it's killing on the other hand. So on the one sense, the IDF's military reputation is not being enhanced because it's seen to be using excessive force. But on the other hand, it is keeping its soldiers alive, which obviously is its intention. I think I think the Americans are getting increasingly frustrated that it is using, you know, a sledgehammer to crack a nut, frankly. And these civilian casualties are causing the American cause for concern. They are calling for a humanitarian pause, as they put it, whereas the rest of the world, including Gutierrez, uh, the head of the UN, is calling for a ceasefire. And those calls for a ceasefire are getting increasingly loud. Gutierrez did say one interesting thing, though, or at least one concession to Israel, and that is that he has now acknowledged that Hamas is using civilians as human shields, as he puts it. Uh, It's a complicated picture, of course, but nevertheless, the broader impression I'm getting is the same one the Americans are thinking, which is that Israel needs to be a bit more surgical. It probably needs to use more infantry to sort out the Hamas problem. And yet if it does that, it's going to incur more casualties. So there's this delicate balance that the Israeli military are operating. And yet the rest of the world, frankly, would like to see many fewer civilian casualties. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the calculation that they'll be making uh, is that first and foremost, they want to satisfy the Israeli public that their soldiers are not putting at any unnecessary risk. So the more soldiers that die, you know, the, the more problems that they're going to face in, in sort of retaining support for the war, frankly. So I think in that calculation, they're less concerned about what the world thinks about the civilian casualty count than they are about what their own public thinks about the IDF uh, casualties. So I think that's a rather grim uh, sort of calculation that is being taken into account at all times. But this question of the IDF's reputation, I mean, it's always been associated with the notion of purity of arms, this basic principle, which is that you only use the weapons and the force necessary to defeat your enemy. And also in fighting your enemy, always bear in mind that He's a human being like you. I think um, 
that concept is being sorely tested, to put it mildly, uh, in what we see in going on in Gaza. But I think another uh, sufferer in, in reputational terms would be the Israeli intelligence services, both at home and abroad. I think Israelis are entitled to ask, you know, if, if you knew so much about the existence of these tunnels and these Hamas bases that you're now bombing, why didn't you do something about them before? And of course, back to the very beginning, if you were so well informed, how come you were so ignorant about the dreadful Hamas operation? And I think people are digging down actually deeper into the whole Israeli security strategy. And one story, which unwelcome story, which is popping up again now, is why Israel encouraged Hamas to come into existence in the first place. Um, this is something that, you know, the story has been around for a long time that, you know, Israel actually facilitated the growth of, of Hamas. Now, this is not some nutty conspiracy theory. It's something that uh, several Israeli officials who are engaged in the project have actually acknowledged. This was back when Israel controlled Gaza and the first Palestinian intifada, the uprising, broke out uh, in the late uh, 1980s. Now, some uh, in the security establishment saw the Palestinian Islamists, you know, a very nascent, very small force in those days, as a potential asset because they could then be used to undermine the secular leftist PLO who were behind the uprising. That's, you know, Fatah and PLO, Yasser Arafat, all that. And they actually latched on to a, a strange figure, a, a cleric, Islamic cleric called Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, who was uh, a quadriplegic from, a, I think, a sporting accident. He was also half blind. Now, he was a sort of growing force there in, in promoting sort of Islamic awareness, his, his traditional Islamic values, etc. And they basically, on the principle of divide and rule, were initially quite tolerant of Sheikh Yassin and, and his activities, which then grew into the Hamas organization, which is an acronym for Islamic Resistance Movement, so he didn't seem very threatening back then, so they funneled money into his mosques, etc. But after a while, it became clear that he wasn't just a harmless cleric. He was actually had a violent nationalist agenda. So they, they then sort of you know, removed all support. And indeed, Sheikh Yassin was assassinated by the IDF back in 2004 when he was on his way back from, from the mosque. So... You know, the people are now asking questions about, you know, again, if, if our intelligence services are so smart, how come they sort of made that miscalculation all those years ago? But there's something that we don't hear that, haven't been hearing that much about in the last few days, and that's the initial fear that this might spark a wider regional conflict. Do you see any evidence of that happening? No, not yet. I mean, r remember that America moved incredibly quickly to try and prevent that from happening by moving these two carrier groups, you know, off the coast of, of Israel into the eastern Mediterranean. And, you know, is that inevitably going to solve the problem? Not necessarily. And there have been attacks against US bases in Syria that Iran is acknowledging it's behind. But the chances of, of other countries, this being a state conflict, and therefore this being a kind of existential issue for Israel, which we, we addressed in the last couple of weeks, I can't see any signs of the likelihood of that happening while America is holding such a robust position in terms of its support for Israel. But it will be interesting to see whether or not that support, given the kind of issues we've raised in this podcast, which is, you know, what is the post-conflict scenario going to look like, whether that support stays as steady as it's been up till now. And just, you know, follow up on your point about this divide and rule thing. It isn't a nutty conspiracy theory, Patrick. You're absolutely right, because they're 
have been very credible articles in the Times of Israel and elsewhere, making the very point that Netanyahu's government itself encouraged Hamas and has allowed enormous amounts of funds to come into the Gaza Strip from Qatar and elsewhere as a kind of quid pro quo in the hope of keeping the peace. Well, that policy seems to have backfired very badly. Yes, I I think you're absolutely right that there's not at this moment any great sign that this is going to spread beyond the boundaries of Israel-Palestine. But I think already it's kind of made an appearance on on the whole kind of culture war front, hasn't it? It's uh, it's something that's that's a very divisive issue. Both sides are distorting and misrepresenting the other side's positions. They're sort of calling each other out. Why didn't you say this? Why didn't you say that? The rhetoric's all very rather kind of unnervingly harsh, I think. Um, I'm thinking actually of this um, in our own country, in Suella Braverman, our Home Secretary, who sort of characterized people who go and march for a free Palestine. Uh, according to her, these are hate marches. Just a little personal detail. I was in central London on Saturday, r- returning a book to the London Library, and there was um, a demo going on uh, in Trafalgar Square, a, a free Palestine demo so I wandered over and had a look at it and I must say that I you know didn't see any signs of violent anti-israel sentiment uh, all the chanting was about uh, free palestine ceasefire now so you know when you read about it in the papers the following day particularly the daily mail I have to say you know it was presented as if it was some sort of very threatening occasion it wasn't I saw lots of young people there lots of families there lots of people who clearly weren't arabs so it was seen to me to be part of just the great you know, democratic British tradition of getting out on the streets and peacefully stating your view in a kind of civilized fashion. It's bad enough that what's going on physically on the ground without it turning into a culture war battle as well, I think, but I'm afraid that's what seems to be happening. Yeah, and just to, quick, just to quickly add to that, I mean, there was a kind of slightly alarming report I say, saw in the paper this morning saying that a, an aged poppy seller had been had been attacked and beaten up uh, by some people marching in support of Palestine. But, you know, that's, that's one separate incident. And I suspect if you were obviously Jewish, it might be slightly alarming to come across one of these marches. So we shouldn't entirely downplay the fact that there may be some bad, well, there almost certainly will be some bad actors trying to take advantage of this. But do the majority of people marching in support of the Palestinian people have, you know, uh, strong anti-Semitic feelings? I doubt it very much. Having said that, I absolutely do not in any way underplay uh, the fears that the the Jewish communities have. You know, when you see anti-Semitic graffiti on your neighborhood restaurant, you know, its memories are still strong of, you know, you you think back to to the daubings on the walls of Jewish uh, windows of Jewish premises and Jewish businesses in 1930s Germany. Having lived in France, I can say it's quite a frequent occurrence there. And I think that the French Jewish population are very alarmed by what's going on and have very good reason to as well. So don't for a moment think that I don't completely understand their unease. Okay, well, let's wrap up this half. Do join us after the break when we'll be attempting to answer listeners' questions. There are uh, quite a myriad of uh, very emotive responses, as you will imagine, for a, a subject like this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. Well, a really thoughtful and heartfelt bunch of questions this week, which once again shows how deeply our listeners feel about this subject. But it's heartening that there's some um, signs of, you know, people, very little sign of the kind of tone deafness that you sometimes get in these debates or people absolutely sticking to entrenched positions. So thanks very much uh, for all the thought uh, that, that you put into these. And it certainly made me think again about some of my positions. Okay, we've got an email from Fleur Kelly, which we're actually going to read out rather than respond to particularly. I mean, her overall question is, what are the reasons for the US and UK support of Israel? Um, and as a result, their implied support of the Israeli government actions in Gaza. The way she sees it, and she makes a number of really interesting points, the gagging of any criticism of the Israeli government's actions, automatically labeling it anti-Semitic, having an understandable ally in the wild Middle East in the form of Israel, interest in their high-tech innovations, arms dealing. Neither the US, France, or UK have ever taken responsibility for their blunders of the past in the Middle East and their subsequent problems arising from these interventions. Then there is Europe's treatment of the Jews historically, which adds complicated layers of guilt and envy to the mix, all in the face of the UN, who are desperately trying to create some moral responsibility where most of its major historical participants appear inexplicably tied up in knots and unable to see or acknowledge the full horror of what is going on in Gaza. Um, great points, Fleur. And she actually lives in France, interestingly enough, but has been following the Ukraine version of the podcast very keenly, as indeed many of my family have. But this is her first intervention on Gaza. Patrick, what do you make of her points? Yes, so I think that was uh, Saul's full disclosure that Fleur Kelly is, is in fact Saul's aunt. <laughs> uh, but I would say that is a pretty good analysis. We didn't read out everything, but uh, I think that Fleur has summed up in one, two, three, four paragraphs a kind of um, 360 degree tour d'horizon of what's actually going on there. So thank you very much indeed for that, Fleur. I'd, I'd agree with virtually all of it. Now, Chris Searle is taking us to task about switching our attention away from uh, Ukraine and to the Hamas-Israel conflict. And he says, uh, I realize that you're experts, but in my opinion, this, i.e. the Gaza podcast, is the stuff of, of a completely different podcast rather than your Ukraine one. Don't quite know what, what the criticism is there, Chris. But I think we need to, you know, keep telling listeners why it is that we are concentrating on Gaza. Do you want to do that, Saul? Yeah, I mean, when we started this podcast, Patrick, if you remember back in the distant, uh, dim and distant days of uh, early 2022, the plan was to have a podcast that really looked at the business of warfare, battlegrounds, uh, you know, and all the all the factors that underlay that, the history, the society, the politics, the diplomacy. 
And we never intended to be fixated on one particular conflict. Indeed, we started with the Falklands War, where Patrick, of course, had, had been as a war correspondent, very young war correspondent. And the plan was to jump around a bit. Well, the Ukraine war happened, and we felt absolutely determined to, to keep an eye on it and, and to make sure that there was a proper objective analysis of what was going on. And we intend to continue with that. But it was never our intention to have a podcast specifically about Ukraine any more than it would be about Gaza. And in fact, our plans, I think we can reveal now, can't we, Patrick, that in the new year, we are going to continue with our coverage of Ukraine at least once a week until it is resolved. But we're also going to be rebranding the podcast with its initial name, which is just Battleground. So on Friday, you will be hearing the Ukraine episodes. And on Wednesday, and also we intend to have a sort of subscription model too, so people will, will be getting extra content. Well, they will be separately badged as to whatever the content we're looking at at the time. And of course, if Gaza is still going, come the new year, we'll be keeping an eye on that too. Now, we've got one here from Narva Creech in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, Narva says, Dear Saul Patrick, and pleased to say he includes Roger as well <laughs> in his salutation. So Roger Peter did a great job last week, as I'm sure all the listeners agree. He did a worryingly good job, actually. Um, I, I should just quickly say to the <laughs> listeners, I listened to both episodes, as you do when someone's standing in, in for you. And I, I was quite alarmed at how seamlessly <laughs> Roger slips into the seat. I suspect you felt something similar, Patrick, when he stood in for you. But no, Roger's brilliant. Um, he, he's an Eastern European expert, which is quite useful, frankly, given that you and I, you know, have had to get up to speed in that particular area. But he's got, you know, a great manner. And uh, it's nice to think that going forward, as long, as long as Roger doesn't get distracted by a podcast of his own, that we will be hearing more from him as and when we need to. Yes, they're worryingly good, Roger. Well, to get back to Narva, he's actually brought up in Israel. And so he actually, it's very good to hear uh, that he he's likes what we're doing. He says, um, you gave him in a recent one an excellent background picture for some of today's issues. But he does say that he has one request. Could you please, please, please refrain from using the expression proportionate response? This is i.e. when we've been saying that, you know, the IDF should be carrying out a proportionate response uh, in its campaign in Gaza. And he goes on, every time I hear that expression, I just want to bang my head against the wall. Calling for a proportionate response by the IDF is completely nonsensical. Why anybody who took five minutes to think about their choice of words would wish that on other people is beyond me. And he cites the uh, what uh, Douglas Murray, who is a British commentator who writes mainly for The Spectator, he says, Douglas Murray said it best, quotes, a proportionate response in this case would be Israel going and decapitating precisely the same number of babies that Hamas decapitated or going into Gaza and abducting and raping precisely the same number of women that Hamas raped. Of course, Israel wouldn't do that. And Nava also makes an interesting point about the existential threat that Hamas represents. I mean, I, I said on a previous podcast that it doesn't. Uh, and he agrees with this and that Hamas alone would never be able to reach their objective of wiping Israel off the map and getting rid of all the Jewish people. But as Roger pointed out, Hamas has allies. Even if Iran, Syria, Lebanon, and any of the number of Israel's neighbors choose not to get directly involved, the combined threat of the Houthis, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, Daesh, and Hamas 
could be existential, says Navas. So more importantly, Israel cannot afford to look weak in the eyes of her enemies. Anything less than a devastating response in this war will make Israel appear weak. And what follows further down the line could potentially be catastrophic and not just from Israel. And, and the reason it's really interesting to hear this is because Nava is clearly not an extremist, Patrick. He's, you know, he's probably on the on the kind of middle ground of Israeli politics. And when you read a response like that, you realize actually it is going to be very difficult to see in the future a different political landscape that is going to make it possible for some kind of long-term solution to be reached with the Palestinians if the Israelis are so paranoid, as Nava is pointing out about their security. Yeah, well, paranoid is perhaps not the right word in this uh, context. But to start off with the proportionality question, I think uh, what's meant here by proportionality is that the West holds Israel to a different standard than it does Israel's enemies, and for good reason. I mean, Israel's a democracy, and democracies are pretty thin on the ground in in, uh, that part of the world, and it always presents itself as as such. It says to the world, essentially, we are, or to the West, uh, to Europe, to America, we are people like you. Obviously, people don't expect Israel to respond uh, to like with like, On the subject of Douglas Murray, uh, I think Douglas Murray's rather lost the plot here. Like a lot of uh, friends of Israel on the right, uh, he doesn't seem to have ever actually lived or worked in the place. Now, I do agree with the idea that part of the problem is the political ethos of the area, if you can call it that. This is Nava's second point. And it is indeed a very tough neighborhood. The history of the place is that, or that's what everyone tells themselves who lives in it, is that you have to act swiftly and with maximum force if you're going to retain the respect and the fear of your neighbors. Otherwise, they're sent weakness and essentially you're dead. Now, I think that's certainly true of Iran, potentially Syria, but it can work the other way. And I think we always should always, when we're looking at the history, look for, for some kind of glimmers of light uh, in the past. Now, think of Egypt. Egypt launched three full-scale conventional wars against Israel, but Israel and Egypt ended up uh, being at peace with each other. They signed a peace deal in 1979 when Anwar Sadat of Egypt and Menachem Begin of Israel sat down at Camp David and and signed uh, these peace accords brokered by US President then Jimmy Carter. Now, that peace has never seriously been threatened since. So let's remember it can be done. Okay, we've got another fascinating email from Israel, and this comes from Alan Abbey in Jerusalem, who is an American-born Israeli and retired journalist and media professional who, back in the day, protested the Vietnam War while he was at university in the USA, but has since proudly sent all three of his children into the IDF. One is a lieutenant on active duty now. As for a question, he says that we raise the tantalizing issue of whether the IDF is configured for the type of fighting it has faced, first in policing the West Bank and now in invading Gaza with the stated goal of wiping out Hamas. I mean, he really asks us the question, what type of military do we believe Israel needs, given that it has these kind of myriad of of issues it needs to deal with, which is the security, it's sort of internal security concerns, as he pointed out, but also the fact that it actually, frankly, has to face states in the Middle East who are interested in wiping it out. So his his question is, considering that until recently it faced enemy governments with their own tanks and planes, and the fact that it now faces the quasi-army of Hezbollah to the north, the seemingly trained and suicidal 
army of Hamas to the south, the unruly militias of Syria to the Near East, and the murderous mullahs of Iran to the farther east, what kind of IDF do we imagine it needs to be? Well, it strikes me, Patrick, one thing's pretty clear, that they cannot uh, devoid themselves of the kind of heavy weaponry that uh, they are now using, and we are sort of criticizing to a certain extent that they're using as this blunt force in Gaza City. My broader feeling, any more than they, than they uh, need to devoid themselves of the ability to operate sort of counter-terrorist operations. But as I said earlier in the podcast, I mean, I think America's frustration and mine is that they're not using more of these kind of surgical methods as opposed to the blunt force. So the, the broader answer to the question is clearly Israel needs to spend an awful lot of money on its military because it needs both capabilities or it needs a multiple capabilities to to deal with the multiple threats it faces but the best way of you know in, in the long term as you pointed out with the egypt solution and and to be fair it was heading this way with our other arab states recently the best way to deal with security concerns is to find a political solution to them if you can yeah i should have uh, mentioned that the abraham accords which was you know tremendously sort of optimistic development and making terrific progress. I mean, attitudes of generational long attitudes are being switched uh, in a vital part of, of the region. I think uh, we've said this several times, I think it, it deserves saying again, this clearly was one of the aims of Hamas, you know, probably almost certainly on the instructions of Iran, that uh, this process was very unwelcome to them and needed to be derailed. Um, but the other consideration about when Israel is, is facing all the, all the multiple questions posed by, by its geographical situation and political situation, all the multiple varied and different genres of, of threat. They can have all the technology in the world, but they've actually got a pretty small population and by extension, a pretty small army. So I think that does complicate uh, their problems. They've got to have people in sort of multiple roles, conventional roles, unconventional roles. You know, they've got to make these very finely balanced calculations about to what extent there's technology reduce the need for tanks. They'll be looking very, very closely at Ukraine to see what the lessons of the future of warfare are that can be drawn from that. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a terrible problem that they're facing. And um, it's kind of you to think that we, we might be able to provide some instant answers. I can't off the top of my head. But I, I think the, the first thing is to actually start off by having a major review of what the threats uh, that Israel faces are at a very, very deep kind of re-examination of re resources, assets, and doctrines uh, to try and face the situation in a more, how do you put it? I don't know, flexible way, I suppose. Okay, final question from Gripa, and uh, he makes the point about pogroms. He was taught many moons ago that the actions of 7th of October may be many things, but definitely not a pogrom. For it to be a pogrom, the authorities located in the region of the violence must at least tacitly approve this violence, which obviously Israel did not. For example, in the West Bank, arguable before this last government, but most certainly since, I note this is, this is increasing as the settlers have become emboldened. Why is there so little reporting, he asked, within the British media, specifically outlining the actual tactics and threats suffered on Palestinian farmers by these Israeli settlers? Or is this, he asked, fake news? Patrick, do you know anything about this? Yeah, thanks for that, uh, Gripa. Pogrom is uh, a term that both uh, Roger and I used to describe uh, in part what the Hamas atrocities were about. But I think you're right. It's, it's, if you're going to be very specific about it, um, it, it's not a very precise term. And 
I've heard the term actually used uh, recently by Martin Indyk, uh, the UK born, Australian raised uh, US citizen who served as, as the United States ambassador to Israel and as a special envoy to the region. Now, you know, he's a very, very strong supporter of Israel, but he has used that word pogrom in relation to attacks carried out by Israeli settlers on their Palestinian neighbors. This has been going on for some time now, for decades, in fact. And of course, you know, settlers are going to be a very big part of the problem uh, when it comes to a solution. There are 450,000 of them on the West Bank alone. That's before you come on to East Jerusalem. And, you know, these some of them are not ideological at all. They're just dormitories of, of, um, of the big cities. But others are occupied by religious Zionists who see this as their historical biblical birthright. So removing them from the land, persuading them to lead is going to be a massive problem. But, uh, yeah, I think that's uh, we've got to be careful about using that, that word pogrom. I mean, what, what happened was absolutely, I suppose, beyond description. We're going to have to find some word for it. Now, we want to end on a, on a uh, slightly different note, which is, as listeners will have been made fully aware, Saul spent last week in a canoe uh, battling through the waters <laughs> of the west coast of Scotland. Now, you know, we were full of awe that you should take this on. We were desperate to hear what actually happened. Well, how can I put it? We, we tried to bite off more than we could actually chew. I mean, the, the original plan was to do this three-day expedition, which was mirroring a, an SBS training run that was carried out in the 1940s during the Second World War. And the plan was to do it in August, when, of course, the weather would have been much more clement. But for various reasons, which I won't bore you with, um, we moved to November and still felt it would be a hell of an adventure. And, and after all, some of the real missions in the Second World War, the most famously the Cockleshell Heroes attack on Bordeaux, took place in December. So it's not as though these sorts of things didn't happen. But we quickly realized that getting into these two-man canoes and paddling through open seas, I mean, we crossed the opening to the Firth of Clyde, for example, Patrick, in winds that were actually getting up to force five, gusting force six, wasn't a very good idea. And I have to say there were moments during the first day's paddle when I really wondered if we were going to come out of it alive. And if that sounds dramatic, I suggest anyone who wants to give a go to sea kayaking to go up to Scotland at that time of year, and they will understand what I'm talking about. Well, fortunately, we had an expert guide who did get us through, but he also suggested, given that the weather was worsening, that we needed to call off days two and three. By that time, of course, I was already utterly exhausted and a certain amount of nervous energy had been expended. And, and secretly, I was quite pleased with this cancellation. We do intend to complete the course, so to speak, next year. It was a hell of an experience. And I'd just like to say a final thank you to everyone, including many listeners to the podcast, who actually donated money for a very, very worthwhile cause, which is uh, the military charity SAFA. So thank you for that. I think in view of what you just heard, listeners, that or donators, that you might wish to consider doubling your donation, given what Saul has just been through. <laughs> okay, that's enough for this week. Do join us on Friday, where we'll be looking at all things going on in Ukraine. Goodbye. <laughs>